you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. LAS Studios. I'm Antonia Cerejido, host of Norco 80, and welcome to the second bonus episode for the series, focusing on the rise of gun culture and militarization of the police in the wake of the Norco bank robbery. Joining me for this conversation are Michael Sierra Arevalo, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, and also Chris Haxel, co-host of the NPR podcast on the gun debate, No Compromise. I started the conversation by asking each of my guests about their own personal history with guns and how that has informed their work. First up is Chris Haxel from the NPR podcast, No Compromise. I grew up in the Midwest, and you know, when I was a kid and teenager, my experience with guns was mostly limited to a little amount of hunting. You know, maybe you take the shotgun out and shoot some trap or that sort of thing. Not really, you know, sort of your classic like old school gun culture, I guess you would say. Um, but really, where I became familiar with guns was when I joined the army. Um, I spent before I ever became a journalist, I spent a few years in the army, and of course, I, you know, was trained how to use any type of gun you can imagine the military uses. Um, and over the course of my time in the military, I obviously was friends with a lot of the people I worked with. And, you know, while I personally didn't come from a strong gun loving uh, background, a lot of people I became familiar and friends with and acquainted with were really into guns. And in fact, at one point I had a roommate who was, you know, he was the type of guy who after work on a Friday, he would go stop at the gun store and pick up a new gun for his collection, right? I, mean, I remember one day I was watching TV and he walks in and he, he's holding the, you know, he walks in with what looks like a shotgun and he's like, or sorry, it looks like an AK-47. And he's like, this is actually a shotgun, but it looks like an AK-47. Isn't that sweet? Um, and so- Yeah, what'd you say? <laughs> I said, yeah, that is sweet. And also I'm happy you keep that locked in your room. Cause okay. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't want that to be like, a, you know, just sitting out on the couch or the coffee table or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, that was, you know, frankly, sort of, sort of my life for several years. Um, and then later, obviously, I, I became a journalist and, you know, I was a, a print newspaper reporter just doing pretty typical beats, you know, criminal justice, public safety, courts, that sort of thing. Um, but then a couple of years ago, I joined a public radio reporting collaborative called Guns in America. And the whole point of this project basically was to report on guns and gun violence and gun culture and do so with you know, a depth of reporting that you don't get always from the, the media. You know, you have, you know, not every reporter knows the right terminology to use or knows people who are, you know, in, into gun culture and that sort of thing. Um, so I spent a couple of years doing that. And as part of that project, uh, worked on this, the aforementioned podcast, No Compromise, which is basically about a group of pretty extreme pro-gun activists uh, who are active across the country. Michael? So my uh, experience with guns in some ways is a, is a family one. So my grandfather was a police officer in Colombia uh, many decades ago and was actually a competitive marksman for much of his life. 
And my mom was uh, a member of the U.S. Army, so she, in basic, obviously shot, and she had grown up uh, kind of seeing firearms. And in, at the time in Colombia, there was there was a lot of violence, and they were they were they were uh, located near the police base, which is a, a branch of the military in Colombia. Um, and I grew up in Texas, and so it's similar to this idea of like kind of the old school gun culture, the traditionalist hunting culture, that was just something that was around. I, never, I, I was never part of it. I've never been hunting myself, for example, but I had lots of friends who would talk about hunting, dove hunting, deer hunting, turkey hunting. Um, and so that was just something that I, I grew up around. And it didn't seem odd to, to know people who had lots of guns in some cases and spent their weekends shooting guns. Uh, I was part of the Boy Scouts. So I shot bolt action 22s, uh, did a little bit of shotgun shooting, uh, trap shooting, and did some cowboy shooting, so uh, I was not. I didn't. I didn't spend a lot of time shooting semi-automatic pistols, which are the more more commonly bought weapons in the U.S. But a lot of uh, a lot of revolvers, uh, old action thirty eights, lever action rifles, kind of old timey stuff. Um, and after that, I, I never really felt compelled to own a firearm personally, for example. But I, I began to approach guns from a more academic perspective. Uh, when I went to graduate school, I was interested in studying street gangs, uh, in part because of their relationship to street violence, which is driven uh, by gun violence specifically. And so I got involved with this focused deterrent strategy in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, and began to think about gun culture as something that is is not actually hegemonic, something that is bigger than hunting. It's bigger than um, one type of gun owner, and there's different kinds of gun violence. It affects different populations. And most recently, uh, I've gotten to know about gun culture through the eyes of police officers. So my, my research focuses on policing and police culture. And I met a lot of officers who are themselves part of what you would consider to be more traditional gun culture. Uh, but they also are all these, they, they're these individuals that deal with the consequences of gun culture. They deal with the consequences of firearms being on American streets. And so my perspective is informed in some ways by, by where I came from, but also uh, the distance that has come from, from leaving home and seeing the, the broader picture of what the American gun landscape looks like. I think that's really interesting. The way that Norco came together was really like, as a project that was interesting to KPCC and to me was that it was looking at this narrative that the militarization or what people commonly call like militarization of the police was a reaction to gun culture at large. I'm curious, Chris, you, you covered the door brothers in uh, no compromise. And there are these gun rights activists who see themselves as further right than the NRA. For those who don't know them, could you give more context about who they are and also when we're talking about this militarized society, do you think that they fall into that category? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll answer the latter part of the question first and, and just say like the, the door brothers, I think um, what, what makes them so good at what they do is their, their ability to mirror others, right? They can catch wind and figure out what's popular in, in the culture wars. And of course they represent the pretty extreme far right end of the culture wars. Um, and, and ultimately what, what they've tapped into, um, and, and this is you know largely how the podcast opens, is this family of brothers from, from Northwest Iowa. There, there are a bunch of them, but really there, there's three who we focus on uh, who are active in the gun rights world or the pro-gun world, you know, it depends on which terminology uh, you you prefer. But 
they ended up linking up with a couple buddies. And so between these five people, uh, they started pro-gun organizations in about 12 states at last count and maybe more by now. Um, but, you know, they, they, they set up these these huge followings on Facebook. They, they make these Facebook live videos where they'll just talk for not just 30 or 40 minutes. They might talk for three hours and it's just going over and over and over again, the same talking points. Now, of course, if there's five people in 12 states, obviously they aren't in all of those states, but because of the power of social media, they're able to build these audiences and collect donations from all over the country. And yeah, they've positioned themselves pretty far to the right of the NRA. Um, the Door Brothers and a lot of other, you know, pro-gun folks in other states who aren't a part of their network argue that the National Rifle Association is soft on guns. And of course, you know, there are a lot of people in this country who probably disagree with that. But if you come from the perspective of this, like, no compromise mentality, which is their whole shtick, that's their whole mantra, it is true that over the years, the National Rifle Association has compromised on all sorts of gun bills because it's a political lobbying organization and that's how politics works, right? Like if you're going to do business in politics, eventually you're going to compromise. Um, but kind of what they do is they, they sort of play on the fact that a lot of people don't know the ins and outs of politics. They don't know about the smoky backroom deals and they don't understand that you may have a legislator who truly is very pro-gun and very, you know, really does support your second amendment rights, but you just don't have the votes that year. Well, the Doors and their friend, they kind of play off on that and they develop this idea that if you don't vote for every single gun bill that we want and you don't introduce every single gun bill that we want, then you're not a real Republican. You're a Republican in a name only, right? A rhino, which is something we're hearing more and more, especially over the last couple of years. Yeah, I learned um, that term from your podcast, <laughs> the rhino. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. And I mean, they, they, they say it all the time. It's like a slur, right? Um, and it's so, so yes, yeah, so that's kind of the premise of the podcast is like introducing the listener to this world. But then, you know, over the course of the series, we kind of dig deeper and deeper into the background of the, the door brothers themselves, but also like this movement as a whole. And, you know, some of its links to, you know, religious aspects and, and other gun organizations and, and history of racism and that sort of thing. First of all, like how large is the no compromise? I mean, obviously it's hard to probably have exact numbers on this, but like, is it how big is it within gun culture? How powerful is it? And do you think what they're advocating for is like a more militarized society? So within gun culture, I would say, you know, as, as Michael kind of alluded to, like there are different gun cultures, right? There's the old, you know, the old school hunting gun culture. There's, there's all sorts of people who are really into like AR-15s because they're customizable and, you know, you can put whatever scope you want on it and it's just kind of like a fun thing for them, but they maybe aren't necessarily into the quote unquote gun rights movement. Um, but, but the doors and their friends are, you know, I would call them basically a vocal minority, right? If, if you look at the NRA, the NRA claims millions and millions of members across the country. It's kind of hard to say exactly how many dues paying members they have at any given time with the doors. It's a smaller organization, but they have a million plus followers on Facebook. And if you add up all of, you know, they're, they set up nonprofits so you can see how much money they bring in. And it's not nearly the, you know, tens or, or hundred million plus that the NRA might bring in in a year, but it's well into the seven figures. Um, and so if you think about sort of a, a political insurgency that's willing to use those no compromise tactics, uh, they can have a much bigger impact than their, than their numbers would, would suggest. Mm-hmm. 
Michael, you and I spoke on the phone and you'd brought up to me that you had sort of issues with maybe how the term militarized is used. I'm just curious what you think about that term and and what you think it describes. This is a point that was made by uh, one of the original scholars before we were calling it police militarization. His name is Pete Kraska. Um, And he actually prefers the term militarism to militarization. And militarization, I think, in the popular parlance, um, particularly among, you know, the, the subset of the population that watches John Oliver and reads the New York Times, they hear militarization and they're thinking body armor, gas masks, armored vehicles, big, scary looking guns. And to be clear, that is a, a feature, a symptom of, of militarization made possible through things like the 1033 program, the transfer of, of DOD equipment to local police departments for little or no cost. Um, but there's a deeper story about militarism. Uh, and that militarism is about the very structure of American policing, uh, from the organization to the insignias they wear, right? Those are taken from the military, the rank structure of of sergeants to lieutenants to captains, that's all taken from the military. It's training, right? They still refer to it as quote unquote paramilitary training. Now they're changed it to a more friendly, it's now called stress-based training. But in some academies, you're, the instructors um, are wearing drill sergeant hats like you might see in the Marine Corps. There's, none of this is accidental. Um, and so that's militarism right. is the, the, the structuring of the broader occupation of, after the military. Uh, and guns are a key part of that. We have a question from the audience, which Lloyd asks, isn't it counterintuitive that generally police are against strengthening laws that restrict gun ownership? Michael, do you want to take that? I think it is counterintuitive, right? In particular, given how large the firearm looms in the collective imagination of officers. I don't mean imagination to say that they're not real, but I mean that in, in more the the general kind of cultural sense, right? The things that officers are really are really worried about and really care about guns. So how do we get to a place where so many officers are gun aficionados themselves on multiple firearms, spend a lot of time training, uh, are ardent supporters of the Second Amendment, uh, and even resent uh, recent calls to say restrict gun ownership. We've had sheriffs come out very publicly and say, we will not be enforcing any of these new restrictions. Um, I think part of it comes from a similar, similarly to, to there not being a hegemonic gun culture, police are themselves also not hegemonic. There is variation. All of that said, however, there is a general trend among police, uh, at least in the place that I've spoken to in, in my research, uh, police tend to believe in tenets of things like individual responsibility. Uh, they tend to believe in this idea of individual agency. And as a result, they tend to believe very strongly in the idea of individual liberty. Mm -hmm. They would be proponents of an individualist reading of the Second Amendment. It's not about the militia, which you might have heard like in these conversations around collectivist versus individualist. They are not particularly in love with the idea of it being a collective right. It's an individual right. And in some ways, it's also a very practical thing. And by that, I mean that police officers know better than anybody else that if somebody is trying to hurt you in that moment... An officer is very unlikely to be there, and they're very unlikely to get there fast enough to save you. And so they know that intimately because it's true. And so from their perspective, in some ways, they're very happy to have some people in the population. And this is traditionally like white, straight men own guns to help them 
in their goal of preserving order, whatever that might be. And generally speaking, it's preserving order against a black or Latino other, the the prototypical gang member, or more recently, the mass shooter. They see potential allies in American gun owners because they recognize the limitations of their own police powers. One of the anecdotal facts in Norco that really stuck with me was how that when the officers were told that they couldn't have uh, right after Norco happened, they wanted larger weapons and they were told no. And they would show each other their guns in their trunks. I think that is a question that was raised that Lloyd asked. That was a question that was raised in the series is like, well, you know, if you're facing these terrifying guns, why wouldn't the police become some of the most ardent anti-gun lobbyists, and instead you feel more connected to your gun, you depend on it more. I thought that was a, a really powerful visual to sort of describe what you're explaining, Michael. Chris, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Antonio, to the point that, that Michael was making about, you know, which which people police, police may want to have guns or not to have guns. I mean, one thing I've seen from the push in state legislatures across the country is oftentimes you do see when, when there's a, a, a gun restriction bill an a, or an anti-gun bill, oftentimes you'll have like the police chief's organization, the police chief's lobbying union, you know, whatever you want to call it, will be in favor of those bills. But it's because they tend to be from the larger cities where, where gun violence is more of a problem and their officers are more likely to, to face the danger. Whereas in some of the rural estates or rural parts of the states, they're less likely to support them. My first impulse when I hear that is that that sounds also like a racialized difference, like who the gun owner is. Michael, one area that you've been researching recently has been for-profit police training programs. One person that I know you've looked into is Dave Savage smith who started making training videos in the 80s, so after Norco. I'm curious if you could talk just about that trend, the for-profit police training world. The ecosystem of for-profit police training is one that is is surprisingly undocumented. There are various examples of early texts, for example, that originate in the 1980s. They're called things like the tactical edge or street survival. And they're, they are still bought by officers to this day, even though the, the imagery is, is straight out of 1970s cop TV, big mustaches, that kind of thing. And so the books are still bought. They are still used in some academies as textbooks. And the premise of those books, like a lot of police training more generally, is that your number one concern at all times is to stay safe, uh, is to ensure your safety. This is something that is relatively unregulated outside of police training itself. And so Dave Buck Savage um, Smith, he was a, a former Tucson police officer, I believe, and he... Uh, his character, Buck Savage, was actually part of this kind of tongue-in-cheek style police training video way back in the day. Um, since then, uh, I, I think he's since retired, and now he kind of goes on the road, and he's got a training seminar called The Winning Mind. And it's about winning. Uh, it's not about surviving. It's about winning. And he's got a mantra of things like, not today, as in today is not the day that you die. Not today. And this has actually just become something ubiquitous within police, this idea of not today. And you'll see it printed out on pieces of paper and and like, uh, taped outside of the gym and like train hard because not today, like that kind of, that kind of rhetoric. But Dave Smith is, is one of many police trainers. He's cooperated with other trainers, people like Dave Grossman. He always pops up after high profile police shootings, uh, and is, is the self-professed, uh, founder of Killology. He's a, a former West Point psychiatry professor, has published some, some best-selling books titled things like On Killing. 
and he teaches the Sheepdog Seminar. Uh, he has partnered with various people like Dave Smith over time, and he also portrays policing as this profoundly dangerous undertaking. Uh, he talks about meeting violence with righteous violence. He talks about officers as the sheepdogs, defending the naive, defenseless sheep from the wolves, that officers must in some ways become the predator to hunt the predator. And he sells this. This is a product. And so the, what the research that I've been doing recently is looking at is sort of outlining this system. Uh, and what are the incentives for the trainers? What is the demand? How do you regulate or not regulate this kind of training? How do they, in terms of like who hires them, who are the clients for these for-profit programs? So traditionally, it would have been restricted to law enforcement or military. And my suspicion is that that is how it began, as like a law enforcement only or military only training. Over time, this training has been transformed to something that, be, that can be consumed by anybody with an internet connection. You can go on today uh, and you can just Google Dave Grossman and you can take a version of his on combat class or his warrior mindset class. Uh, and so the customer base has expanded rapidly. Uh, but traditionally, it would be a police department that would bring this person in. And so sometimes it can be the department paying directly as a training opportunity, either for an academy class or for in-service training, which is a yearly training that officers will do to maintain their certification. And in other cases, it's actually paid for out of uh, the union dues. So the local police union will pay to bring this person in as a training opportunity for their officers. Minneapolis provides an instructive example. The city government said there would be no more warrior training after the police killing of Flando Castile. Uh, and Geronimo Yunez, the officer involved in that shooting, was found to have attended one of these trainings. So the city said, we're going to, we're no more of this warrior training. Oh, wow. The union pushed back extremely hard. And in fact, I think it was one, either Law Officer Magazine or one of these policing magazines offered to make the training available to officers for free. And so there's a variety of ways to get this training. And frankly, if the training is being offered in your area, and it can be offered at community colleges, it's been offered at churches, it's been offered through a variety of organizations. If you've got money in your pocket, you can go, depending on whether or not it's close to law enforcement or not. So there's a variety of mechanisms in place to say pay the trainer, but the training, you know, is is largely interchangeable. Though there's obviously going to be some specifics that will be for law enforcement versus Dave Grossman, for example, has a a training that he does now that operates specifically through churches. It's like a Christian-based sheepdog style thing for kind of building civilian sheepdogs. Civilian sheepdogs. I mean, the sheepdog, I heard that a lot, the sheepdog description, um, specifically when I talked to the psychiatrist who treated a lot of the officers who were dealing with trauma after the the bank robbery. It's interesting how those sort of metaphors persist. Chris, I feel like that intersects with so much stuff about the Door Brothers also. Yeah. <laughs> Before I even jump into the Door Brothers, I mean, the exact same ecosystem exists within the military. Um, especially post 9-11 era, you've seen a huge growth in the number of special operations soldiers. And all of these special operations soldiers need this, you know, so-called specialized training, right? And it's expensive to stand up a military school. You need to have a place, you need to have, you know, you need to have trainers, or cadre, that sort of thing. So what happened is all of these private contractors, so if people remember Blackwater, right, it's most, you know, infamous for having mercenaries causing all sorts of problems overseas, but a big moneymaker for Blackwater was setting up training, which they would sell, you know, it'd be a week or maybe two weeks, uh, 
where you would go to the Blackwater campus and you would learn how to shoot specific types of guns or you would be trained in specific dangerous types of scenarios. And it's not just Black, you know, I don't know what Blackwater is even called anymore. They've changed their name so many times. Um, but there's there's this entire ecosystem that, you know, sounds identical to the same thing Michael's talking about, where you've got these organizations that by and large are filled with former special operations troops uh, who were trained how to do this stuff and then they get out and they realize they can make money teaching the same stuff they learned either to new special operations troops or increasingly uh, to civilians. So, I mean, that's, you know, uh, when, when he's talking about how, how you can watch these videos, I mean, I've, <clears throat> I, I've, been, I've been so interested in it. I've tried to convince my editors to give me money so I can attend one of those classes, right? Just so I could experience it for myself on the civilian side. Um, b- because, yeah, like there are, there are gun stores across the country that are, you know, will have affiliates where if you go to their website, you know, you, oh, you can sign up for CQB training, right? Like What's CQB? Close quarters combat, which okay. is like, that's the military term. And, you, you know, it's it's like, is there anybody, you know, who really is, if you're not in law enforcement or even if you are in law enforcement, do you really need to be spending money out of your own pocket um, to do that? And, you know, some people obviously believe the answer is yes. This whole corner of the gun world that, you know, the, the, the doors themselves don't represent that part of the culture themselves, but you know, the, the people who love the doors, like the, the, that's the corner of the gun world that we're talking about. And yeah, for, for, for them, the idea that you need to be heavily armed and you need to be training, whether you're paying someone to train you or you're going out yourself to the gun range or maybe out into the woods to train with your family or train with your friends. It's good to be training with a firearm if you're going to own one, right? It's better than not training on how to use it because it's a dangerous firearm. But a lot of this stuff, it, it, it goes beyond that and definitely crosses over into those sort of militarized tactics for sure. So we have a question from Emily. Does this type of training extend to security guards or security guard training classes? I don't know if either of you are familiar with this. Um, my, my, my short answer would be to say that I'm not, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question definitively. Although I will say that you know, by way of answering, there are all sorts of levels of distinctions for security guards. And, you know, the, the first one is whether they're armed or unarmed. But, you know, every state has different rules and regulations about what it takes to be an armed security guard and how much training you need. So I think the answer ultimately depends on what part of the country you're in. Yeah, to, to build on that, I think it's hard to know definitively, as Chris said. Um, I think, again, to, to reiterate, this training world is such that really anybody can access it if they have money in their pocket, the question wasn't about police, but these special forces operators are also trading police officers. An important kind of facet of this militarization piece is that departments will bring in Green Berets, Navy SEALs to train. Oftentimes it's their SWAT team. That's who's going to get that specialized training, but sometimes it's not restricted to SWAT. Um, and officers themselves can select into these things. So it's not at all odd to think that a security guard would want to select into the special kind of training. And on the note of the differences in terms of the, the level of security guard that you are, the certification. I, I can only speak for Florida because I have a, a friend there uh, who is a security guard. And he makes it pretty clear that kind of like the loose regulation on concealed carry permits, you take like a class and suddenly you can operate as armed security. And whether or not you choose to buy an external vest with ceramic plates and and your tourniquet and your, your flashlight with the strike 
That's all up to you effectively. And it's relatively unregulated. And there are actually very little protections for the security guards themselves, unlike the police officers who are, are given all kinds of legal backing to do various things related to the use of force. We have a really good question from Marvin, which is, do these private training corporations screen their students, i.e. for mental health issues? My knowledge is limited to the, the military world. So, I mean, anyone who, who's, who's participating in these classes, you know, based on my own personal knowledge as someone who's in the military, like I said, I'd love to take one of these classes and, and, I, and I'd love to know, know more. I'm not sure whether they screen their uh, civilian participants or not, but my guess would be no. I mean, if you have money, that's probably all you need. Maybe they do a minimal background check to make sure they're legally allowed to have a firearm. But I'd be surprised if they do more than that. Uh, Michael, have you heard? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these operations uh, are relatively small time. And so you might have bigger operations that could theoretically do background checks, which would actually get very expensive very fast. But I think the more common case, which is not the the celebrity special forces trainers that you might see on Instagram, for example, they're going to actually be either active duty police officers or retired cops that are kind of doing this as a side gig. And they might do a class on the weekends, maybe once every other week. Those individuals, I think, are the modal trainer, and they are the ones that are least likely to be doing extensive due diligence, background checks, not to mention a mental health screening for individuals showing up. I'm Antonia Cerejido. You're listening to a special bonus episode of Norco 80 on the rise of gun culture and the militarization of police post-Norco. More after the break. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. And we're back with more on my conversation with scholar Michael Sierra Arevalo and journalist Chris Haxall. Lloyd, again, has a great question, but I think we're going to come to that later. Actually, I wanted to bring up, uh, Michael, you mentioned SWAT. And one thing that I learned while doing Norco was that my dad is from Argentina and that growing up he watched, he called it a SWAT. (laughs) And I was like, the music was a SWAT in the show. But I know, Michael, that... Well, one of the interesting things, obviously, with militarization is like we're talking about literally arms, but also there's like a very the warrior look, right? You told me about this moment where you were in Mexico and you realized that like this sort of like idea was like almost being like exported. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah. The the moment in Mexico was uh, I was doing field work there with the Metropolitan Police in Mexico City, and so for for those not familiar with the intricacies of the Mexican police. 
there are like your municipal police at the ground level, and then there's the metro police. And so imagine as if there was an entirely separate police department that was basically all SWAT team. And so they have full reign over the entirety of Mexico City, which is a massive area to cover. And they have rifles, they have Kevlar, they have ballistic helmets, they usually move in convoy, and they respond to anything and everything. So part of their role is proactive. They're looking for guns and drugs. And they're also reactive in that if there's an emergency like floods, which is when I was there, they uh, or right, right after I was there, they uh, had to respond to massive flooding. If there was a fire, so there was an explosion at a distillery, they have to go to those things too. Um, so they're kind of like a, a be everywhere at all times kind of deal. They're not responding to calls for service like on the radio. But when I was there, office, the, the officers there, they asked me specifically uh, if I could get my hands on 511 equipment. Uh, so 511 is a apparel company uh, that originally began producing rip-resistant rock climbing pants. Uh, 511 is, is how you, that's how you grade uh, rock faces. Uh, and it turned out that people like paramedics like their pants a lot because they're very durable. And now years later, 511 is this high profile kind of hidden in plain sight company that produces tactical vests that you might've seen on the CrossFit games, but they actually can still like take plates, like armor plates, but they're originally designed to carry. They design pants that are called like striker and they're designed to be rip and cut resistant pants, good for paramedics and police officers and fire department, uh, sorry, firefighters. And so they wanted this gear because it's high quality, but it also looks a certain way. It looks tactical, or as some would say, a little bit more pejoratively tactical. They wanted it to be brought from the U.S. because it was cheaper and it was higher quality than a lot of stuff that you could get in Mexico. And then I went to Colombia. Again, my family is is from Colombia, and uh, we actually have a little apartment that's near a police base. And that's why I noticed that there was a tactical store, which makes sense. It's across from the military base, but they carry 511 gear. And so I... I kind of had this realization that there's this there's this entire economy built around like the tools of of militarization that are now accessible not just to the military and not just to police but to the average citizen. Five Eleven, for example, also has these ABR academies, uh, which are often run by former police officers or current police officers on everything from building a bug out bag. Their tagline is ABR, always be ready. It'll teach you about. Uh, clearing your house, home defense, uh, tourniquet use for if if you or someone that you're with gets shot. And this is offered free in store, kind of as a way to get customers in the door and potentially sell a couple products. And you can buy tourniquets at 511. You can buy backpacks at 511. You can buy plate carriers at 511. Um, So this is kind of like the aesthetic component that is also becoming civilianized, increasingly so. And globalized. Absolutely. Chris, obviously, I'm I'm sure you are steeped in like the door brother aesthetic. What sort of look do they currently like promote? Yeah, I mean, in in this world, you know, beard, beards are big, right? My beard isn't really big enough to be considered cool in, in that world, but you know, and then you've got your your Oakley sunglasses, which are you know very very common in the military, um, and then preferably a T-shirt with some sort of either patriotic or Second Amendment theme. Uh, obviously, if you can combine them both, that's that's good as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this this idea of tactical or, you know, the, the operator look, right? Special operations, if you are a special operations soldier, you're an operator. So the operator look is something that absolutely has trickled down into, you know, larger society over, you know, the last 20 plus years. And I mean, I, I know I mentioned this earlier, but 
like to me, it goes back a lot to the 20 year war on terror and the fact that you've had, um, you know, I think, I think at last count it was three and a half people have served in the military since 9-11, roughly. And in the military, the special operators, the special ops guys are the cool guys, right? They're the ones who don't have to follow all the rules. They can wear not necessarily whatever they want, but they don't have to wear the exact same uniform as a, whatever they're issued. They're allowed to either go buy their own equipment or their unit gives them equipment. A lot of times when they're deployed, they get to have the beard, they get to have the long hair. So they look cool, right? The younger soldiers, the the regular infantry soldiers want to look like them and they want to act like them. And so when you get your 5.11 gear that Michael was talking about, or you, you know, you, you get your, your plate carriers that look a little different than the issue when you're walking around in the forward operating base overseas, everybody can look at you and they know you're one of the special guys because you aren't wearing the same uniform as everybody else, or you're dressed a little differently, or you have that beard. And I think, you know, for 20 years, you got people filtering in and out of the military. And when they get out of the military, you know, they have that same mindset. They can go buy the almost exact same gun that they used in the military and they can kit it out like the operators did. You know, they weren't able to kit out their M their M4 when they're in the, the infantry, but when they get out, they can buy those cool, you know, night vision goggles or they can buy that cool scope or whatever to make it look like the stuff that the cool guys had. Um, and I think that's the exact same phenomenon you see happening with SWAT teams in police departments across the country, as you guys talked about in the podcast. Yeah, that, that there's the look and also the status that people want. Another thing in the Norco podcast that I thought was so interesting was when they tried that experiment of having them wear the blazers. And I do think it is a really fair point to say that they they interviewed people and they were like, you're still a police officer if you're in a blazer or if you're not. So I thought that was an, an interesting point. But I also think it's interesting that it's not just what police officers are trying to say to regular citizens, but also citizens to their other citizens, you know, like, I think that that's a, it's a big distinction. It's yeah, one is about actual power, but another is about like perceived power amongst just like your community. Well, yeah. And I was surprised to to hear that reaction too. And it, you know, it made me wonder, like, did they do it on a large enough scale or over enough time? Was there enough buy-in? Because I would think that if, you know, a major city department decided to outfit all of its police officers with blazers and, you know, force them to have gear that, you know, could fit under the blazer normally, it probably would change their behavior a little bit. And, you know, I would think over time it may have an impact, but apparently the, the, the citizens who experienced it, you know, didn't, didn't experience that, I guess. That's true. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't think like if the NYPD started wearing blazers that that would be a success personally, but I don't know. <laughs> I'll come back to Lloyd's question. What percentage of training is offered in de-escalation? So I assume that the question is about police training. Um, and so the short answer is that it's small. I'm going to botch the, the, the estimate for the national average, but it's like somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 odd hours is the national average. I think that's right. Maybe that's only California. In any case, it's, it's hundreds of hours. It's less than a thousand hours in most departments for sure. Usually your de-escalation, if it's blocked off a particular amount of hours, it's like single digits. Um, Some departments say that they do de-escalation throughout all of their training, as in de-escalation is always an option, and that gets hard to measure. It also gets hard to really understand what de-escalation is if you're always doing it. The most accurate I think I can be is that 
if departments are doing it, and that is an if, not all departments do it, not all departments mandate it, the number of raw hours spent on de-escalation is far outpaced by the number of hours spent on firearms training, on defensive tactics, and other things like driving, which cost the department lots of money in terms of accidents and also uh, workers' comp from car accidents, things of that nature. Yeah, Chris, do you have an idea? Um, I, I don't. I don't in terms of you know the the time spent for training, but you know one one little point did pop into my head, which was I know in the podcast, Antonio, you guys um, towards the end were talking about the the training video that the police department made after the the Norco shooting and how it was like shown to officers all across the country, and you know it reminded me of I, I forget where, but you know at some point in in my reporting I've done over the years, I, I remember people talking about a similar video that was about people armed with knives, right? And the idea is if someone's armed with a knife, like how far away are they dangerous? And you would think, you know, you and I might think, okay, if somebody's, you know, waving it in front of you, okay, let's call it five feet, maybe 10 feet tops. Well, there's a video that gets shown to police officers that shows someone who is armed with a knife and just takes a run at a police officer and in a matter of, you know, one or two seconds is able to get to them. And they're about 20 feet away. So you've got police officers who are being trained that, you know, just because it's a knife doesn't mean you're safe you know, 15 or 20 feet away. And so that's, you know, absolutely a factor that goes into their de-escalation training. One question that I have is that just last week I was listening to Take Two on the radio and they were talking about a lot of what came up in Norco about this idea that the police officers are trained, that your safety is really important. You could die at any moment. And I'm curious, like, do either of you know if the recent protests or even like the George Floyd protests have impacted that or have made certain stations want to invest more in de-escalation. Like this point has been talked about in the media, I think so much more now than it was definitely a year ago. Yeah. I think that the conversation around changing police training is one that pops up after any crisis in policing. And so obviously Mm -hmm. George Floyd's murder and the subsequent protest are are a watershed in terms of their scale. And by some estimates, it's the largest social movement in American history. And so naturally, the training question has come up again. It's not clear to me that there is going to be a seismic shift when it comes to de-escalation. We've been talking about de-escalation for, for quite some time, well before George Floyd. In my own memory, it really peaked after Michael Brown. That's when we saw the first kind of resurgence of what some people have now called the second civil rights era, or at least a new era of police reform. It's not clear to me that we should expect wholesale changes in police training to come anytime soon, whether that be in de-escalation training or procedural justice training or crisis intervention training or any of the other trainings that have gotten brought out over the past several decades. Yeah. And, and Tony, I, I think it just wi- varies widely. De- you know, every department's different. And, right. and some, some departments have a very distinct culture from a department that may be, you know, not even that far away. Generally speaking, most police departments are just kind of on the defensive right now. And when you're on the defensive, you aren't looking to make wholesale changes. You're, make, you're looking to make incremental changes so that you can appease the people who are complaining about what you've been doing. I haven't seen much evidence of real efforts at, at wholesale change in, in, in this department. Yeah. I hadn't spent a lot of time uh, reporting on police issues and is hearing the different opinions from different officers on this issue. There are a lot of officers who do want de-escalation training, and I spoke to a lot of them. And a lot of them, after Norco came out, messaged me. I think that that 
is rarely talked about, especially in like NPR, New York Times reading areas. And I was sort of humbled by the fact that I wasn't so aware of the internal struggles on these issues. Well, I I was just going to say, I mean, between my pre-military personal life and also more so my military days, I mean, I have a fair number of friends who are law enforcement officers across the country right now. And there are people who I know, but, you know, maybe I'm not, I wouldn't call them friends. And I can think of maybe a couple dozen people I know who are police officers. And some of them, I might have concerns about whether or not they're great cops, but most of them, I think are absolutely fantastic police officers and are probably the type of people who are, you know, having these conversations. You know, I, I can think of one person in particular who is complaining to me about, you know, the overwhelming anti-drug war on drug mentality that his fellow officers have and how, you know, he, he doesn't understand why they're spending so much time still in 2021, you know, going after marijuana offenses or going after even other types of drug offenses. And so, you know, part of me wonders how much of that's generational and whether, you know, we, we may see some change over time just, just naturally. Mm-hmm. To build on Chris's point about generations, in my time with officers, it's very clear to see that change. I think what's also important to point out is that the job itself changes you as an officer. And so there were a lot of officers that were older that I met them. They've been on 15, 20 years. So they cut their teeth in the heart of the drug war. They came up in a department where there was a challenge, like who could get the first felony arrest after you were off of FTO? Who could get the most felony arrests? And it was for a palm full of, of crack, of a couple of vials was good enough for a felony arrest. And it was easy. They would talk about it like shooting fish in a barrel. It was easy to get felony arrests. And it turns out that a lot of officers, after trying that for 20 years and seeing that it doesn't help anything to do those things, a lot of them, they come to realize that the war on drugs is doomed. And they sort of change their tune. It turns out that those officers rarely get to make policy And they, by themselves, cannot change deeper cultural assumptions about what it is police do. And what the police do is fight crime and arrest bad guys and arrest drug dealers and gangbangers and all these other very specific narratives about what police do. So there is change even among individual officers. I think there's reason to be optimistic about a new generation of officers. But again, to Chris's point, like there's a lot of variation from department to department. So some departments are going to be all about stopping cars, getting drugs, and just making arrests. And other departments, particularly in big cities, uh, are being forced in many cases to move away from that style of policing. The public has said, we do not want you just stopping everything that moves and trying to arrest people for marijuana. Austin being one of them. Uh, we've you know, had a recent defunding here, and there, there are moves now to restrict traffic enforcement. And then also, Michael, on the opposite sort of end of this spectrum, you were talking about like celebrity warriors. You know, there's, yeah, there's people who are advocating for, you know, more de-escalation within the police force. But then there's like, there's some video game players. I'm like totally butchering this because I don't know a lot about video games and or celebrity warriors. But yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think that they're related concepts, right? I think that, I mean, I'm not a historian, much less like an ancient historian, but there's there's generally been a warrior class and there's been an understanding that there are people that will do harm to a society and that there are some people who are necessary to defend society, whatever order is being protected. So fast forward millennia and, you know, we're we're kind of at at a late stage capitalism version of this. And so, as Chris mentioned, we have this increase in the number of special forces operators who are leaving special forces are leaving the military and they're trying to find some way to make a living on the outside. Some of them become police officers and then others become trainers. 
some of them achieve something close to celebrity status. I don't know what else you would call it if you have a million plus followers on Instagram and Facebook. One of these individuals, his name is Tu Lam. He's a former Green Beret. He's a celebrity trainer. He goes all over the world talking to soldiers, talking to police officers, offers trainings like the kind that I've described, that Chris has described. And he's also a character that you can download and play as in Call of Duty, the I, I think it's the most popular first-person shooter in the world. There's also people like uh, Tony Setmanat. He has a gym called, uh, I think it's Real World Tactical. It's his company. He also owns a gym in Florida. He provides similar trainings. And he's also a downloadable character called Lurch, also on Call of Duty. Huge Instagram following. He initially got big because of his workout videos, some really extreme workouts that are actually that are pretty cool. That's how I found him. This is, in some ways, like sort of a, it's it washes away where these guys came from, which is through state-funded, and by that meaning taxpayer-funded military training. They were trained to use violence in the now, found a way to monetize it in a way that sort of distances it from what it really is. It's very much hidden in plain sight. Right? It's Call of Duty. A lot of people don't know that they're real people, um, but they are, and they get paid for this. I feel like I finally get it. My uh, fiance plays 2K. It's like how when you play 2K, you are like a team. You can be like, you can play as like LeBron or whatever. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Chris, do you have thoughts about, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I I just, I I just love that that Michael's bringing this up because it's like, you know, I I grew up playing video games like a lot of kids. And when I was in the army, I played Call of Duty quite a bit with my friends, right? We'd, we'd be overseas and wouldn't have anything better to do. You play Call of Duty with each other. The initial scare about video games or these first-person shooter games was that they would lead to violence directly, right? That if you play video games, you're going to be more likely to become a school shooter. You're going to be more likely to commit some egregious act of violence. And, and I think, you know, we can probably safely say now that there's been a fair amount of research into that. I, I think it's probably not true, but I think it's almost certain that there is, you know, the video games are responsible for, you know, some degree of this militarization or the militarism um, of our society writ large, you know, because like Michael said, Call of Duty's probably the biggest video game in the world right now. And the entire principle is you have characters who are basically special operators and they get all these special guns and, you know, people spend hours and hours playing them. It's, it's got to have some sort of effect. But so, yeah, we have only a couple of minutes left. So I just I did I did want to end on a note reflecting on the intersection between both of your research and work and and the Norco 80 podcast. The whole reason we decided to do this show was to look at this really complicated, difficult question about police preparedness in response to a more armed society. What do you think the legacy of that event and also of of the North Hollywood shootout, these like sort of big sort of like legends within the police force, what do you think the legacy has been of those events? To my mind, the the lessons from Norco and, and Hollywood and and just history more generally is that we we sort of have a present that we have doomed ourselves to. And by that I mean we made a choice many years ago. We made a choice that the solution to people being able to easily access rifles was not to restrict access. It was not to to change policies at a macro scale and get in front of a problem that was already like not great. It was instead to engage in an arms race, an arms race in which we are still currently engaged. I think that history lesson does not have especially clear 
prescriptions now, in part because we're in a country that has more guns than people in it. People like to talk about Australia. They like to talk about places that did a gun ban and got rid of all the guns. But it's a difference of scale that cannot really be reconciled. There's a handful of population centers in the entire continent of Australia. You can't do that kind of thing here in the U.S. in the same way. It's just not physically possible. I'm not even sure if it would be legally possible to do that because we're a federalist system. I look at Norco as a necessary step towards understanding how we got here and understanding that we could choose to make different decisions moving forward. But there's every reason to believe that we will continue to make the same kinds of decisions. And maybe that is an underlying lesson there. So we should prepare for that and keep that in mind as we move forward, trying to solve these problems of militarism and firearms and culture. The big lesson for me is really a parallel that I've seen from my own reporting on the gun world, which is like the power of fear, right? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. talking about Norco is one incident. Okay, we can add North Hollywood as well. Okay, two incidents, two major high-profile incidents. How many police departments are there in the country? And we're talking at this point a 40-year time span. And, you know, the, the power of one or two events to cause so many people and so many departments to spend so much money uh, for, for this, this one potential outcome, the likelihood of which is, frankly, infinitesimally small. You know, when, when you look at how, as Michael mentioned, how many people own guns in this country, a big part of the driver of that is fear that people have essentially that some stranger is going to break into their home or their apartment and try to kill them or try to steal their things or injure them in some way. And so a huge percentage, especially over the last 20 years or so, a huge growth in the, in the gun ownership has been driven by people who are buying guns for self-defense, not necessarily to carry with them as they go around town all day, but to defend their home. And when you look at the numbers, A, crime is you know, by and large, way down from the, the the peaks of decades ago. But then when you look at the actual numbers on burglaries and home invasions and that sort of thing, the odds of a stranger being an intruder in your home, coming into your home with intent to cause you harm, it's just extremely, extremely low. And the risk of gun ownership itself, the likelihood of accidental discharge or that gun ultimately resulting in a suicide is actually quite a bit higher than the odds of, you know, someone in your home being injured by that stranger breaking in. So yeah, the the power of fear, I think, leads humans oftentimes to make irrational decisions. That was Chris Haxel, co-host of the NPR podcast on the gun debate, No Compromise. Joining us also was University of Austin Assistant Professor Michael Sierra Arrevalo. I'm Antonia Cerejido. Thanks for listening. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.